about it. Nice to see you all. Have I told you recently that I love teaching this class? This is my, every time I leave, I think, I love that. It is so fun. And Genesis is so fun. I hope you are enjoying it. I had a handful of people, I don't know, at the beginning of the semester kind of give me the look. And they said, listen, I don't like Genesis. But I'm going to come anyway. And I said, well, you haven't heard me teach it. So I said, come on, give it a try. So, and one of them has come up to me since and said, okay, I was wrong. Yes. Good. All right. Before we jump in, let's start with a prayer. I need one. How about you? Yes. All right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask that you come upon us today, that you fill us with your spirit, you give us your peace, you help us to remember that we don't have to carry all this weight on our own, that we have our friends here, that we have you to walk with us and to carry us when we can't walk anymore. As so many people in our community are trying to move forward from the literal storms and the figurative storms, we ask that you lift them up and you help them to reach out to us so that we can help them too. For our friends who need your healing touch, may they receive it. For those who need to be reminded they are not alone, may they remember that your love through us carries them every step of the way. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so today we're going to be looking at chapter 11, and we are going to be looking at some maps. So I hope if you have your Bible, or if you've got your commentary, maybe you can share with a friend. It will, be, it will begin to be helpful for us to look at maps together so we know where people are going and where they came from and all that sort of stuff. We are getting very close, and you, I think, could sort of argue that chapter 11 is the transition toward what might be more historical. All right, we have talked, and I'm surprised I haven't gotten more questions about this, which is not an invitation. I'm just saying. Um, <clears throat> the idea of something being true and not historic. Um, I think, I guess everyone's kind of comfortable with that, which is good. Um, this chapter 11 is where we sort of get to history. In a sense, that, that makes sense to me. Because the end of Genesis is that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, have gone to Egypt and they are stuck. So that at the beginning of Exodus is when Moses is called to take them out. <clears throat> I think in a very real way, Moses' arrival on the scene is the beginning of what the Jewish people would consider kind of some real history. They can sort of track it from there. Now, interestingly, we won't get to Exodus, um, but there is no actual historic archaeological record of Moses ever existing, which is a very interesting thing, because the story of Moses, you know, he was raised in the Egyptian court, and so having written record of him would make total sense, and yet none exist. So we can handle that some other year. But I think that for the Jewish people, that really does mark the beginning of that stuff actually happening. So if you go before Exodus... You get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? I mean, you get those generations. And I, I am very comfortable saying, those, that's probably real stuff. You know, that's probably stuff that actually happened as history. And so that, we get there next week. Chapter 11 effectively gets us from the flood to Abraham, or Abram. And so we are in this transition moment where we go from what would be considered this true myth to something a bit more historic. And I do want to note, because I don't know if I've said this in here yet, um, myth does not mean untrue. I think for some of us, we have kind of uh, conflated those ideas together. That's not how I use that word. I just use kind of true stories. They're the parables. They're the things that were never meant to be technically, scientifically, historically accurate. But to, to communicate or transfer a true idea to stuff that maybe actually happened. And that's really where we are in chapter 11. Um, which interesting is I've got a few questions from last week. And one of them kind of gets at this idea. 
Someone emailed me and said, did Noah as well as others in Genesis really live to be hundreds of years old? And were their ages based on a different calendar? That's clever because it wouldn't be an inappropriate idea to think that maybe years as we consider them is just not what they meant by years. They were really saying something else. So in the Hebrew itself, there's no indication of that. They really do seem to be using the same terminology that they would be using now. So there's no reason we would think they were understanding the span of a year to be a different amount of time. Um, clever idea, but I, there's no evidence of that. Instead, I think that the number of years someone lives actually indicates the improbable nature of the story as accurate history and is part of what leads me to say very comfortably, that's not the point. The point is this is a parable. This is a true story that people are telling and the accuracy of things like ages don't matter. I think that the way the story is being told is in the past, things were different. I think that's kind of a message. In the past, people lived differently. They lived in a, for different amounts of time. They interacted with God in different ways. I mean, think about the way that the story is saying, if you, if you were to read this story at face value, or I'll say me, if I, when I read the story at simple face value, I would say, well, where's God right now? God's walking around, God's talking, God's having conversations with all these other people. Hello. I mean, I haven't been walking with God anywhere or having conversations like literally out loud with God. And if you do have conversations literally out loud with God, I will help you. <laughs> but you know, that's, that kind of idea is really meant to indicate that it's, that's not the point of that story. The point of that story is not to say we really should be living to be 800 years old and something is wrong. No, don't read the story that way. Or maybe God loved people more back then, so we lived longer. I mean, excuse me, I don't want to live to 100, let alone 800. Like, I'm good. You know, my, my grandma, who's over 90, always says, I'm good anytime. I mean, it's really fine. Um, so, you know, at some point, you've lived your life. Like, it's fine. 800 sounds like way too much of this. So I would say that is a good indication. Ages are a good indication that the story is not meant to be some kind of historic accuracy. But it's just a story. It's a good story. And in chapter 11, we actually see that ages begin to decline. So as we go through the genealogy in chapter 11, I won't do every single one, but we will note that people go from living six, seven, eight hundred years to living about 100 to maybe 200 years. Still not possible, right, for us. But living 119 years, that is conceivably an accurate number. And probably not back then. But is it at least possible? Yes. Whereas like 800 is just not possible. So we'll see how that plays out in chapter 11. Um, this still sounds loud to me. Is it not bothering you? Great. Then I won't worry about it. One other question was, could there be other Noahs and other arcs? And together with that, did other areas of the world not flood during the flood? Which is a great way for me to reiterate, in essence, what I said last week, which is these flood stories exist in other cultures. Almost every ancient culture in the world has some story of a big flood. Water was critically important and dangerous. So it was this love-hate with water. If you know much about, say, Egypt, you know that people lived on particular areas of the Nile because the Nile seasonally would flood. And that flooding of the Nile would actually create the fertile land to grow the crops they needed to survive. That's one of the reasons why Egypt became so strong so early on and maintained their strength over time. They could feed their people. Now, for many of us, we forget, how do you feed your people? If you cannot answer that question with a good level of predictability and security, your nation goes away. Egypt figured this out 
by using the flooding of the Nile. But if the Nile floods, then the flooding can also be dangerous. It's good, it lets us raise crops, but if we don't necessarily know when that flooding's gonna happen and we don't know how long the flooding is gonna occur, and maybe most years it only floods once, but occasionally it floods twice, that kind of idea can begin to be scary. And if you're, say, raising a child and trying to teach them about the realities of flood water, how might you teach them to be careful and wary of the water? It sounds like a story like this may be effective, right? If you're going to teach a child to be careful around water, maybe you tell them stories like this so that they realize that water is not just pretty and helpful, but can be dangerous. Does that kind of make sense? And so if you tell stories for long enough, those stories, you know, that fish gets this big. And who knows if after five, eight, ten generations, the story that became or began as one that is really meant to teach safety has actually begun to take on a life of its own as this mythic idea of something really gigantic like the destruction of the world. That all make sense? Every culture somewhere has that kind of story. Whether it's meant to be historic or whether it's meant to just teach a truth, it must have been a big enough deal that water was worth being wise about. Okay, questions or clarity about that? All right, chapter 11. Let's do it. We start with chapter 11. And the first thing we're going to talk about is settlement and kind of settling down. We are, like I said, moving into what seems a bit more historic in nature. Then we get to what is kind of the crux of this whole chapter, the Tower of Babel. Then following the Tower of Babel, you get, in essence, the beginning of the journey that we will focus on in chapter 12, but the family leaves Earth, so the leaving of Earth, and we'll talk about Earth later. Let's go into the settlement. So if you imagine where we are in the whole arc of the story, God creates everything, God creates Eden, then you get Adam and Eve, that doesn't go so well, you get Cain and Abel, that kind of goes worse. Then they get new kids and Seth kind of redeems creation for a minute, but not forever, because then everyone's wicked except for Noah. Noah is saved, the world is destroyed, Noah's sons then begin to go out and repopulate the earth. Okay, that's where we are in Genesis up to this point. So, you good? Look at chapter 10, not quite 11 yet, chapter 10, verse 32. We see the, these are the families of Noah's sons, according to their geologies, in their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Then we get a whole bunch of descendants from each of the three sons. Now, we talked last week about the importance of noting that Ham, who saw the nakedness, his son Canaan, becomes the group of people who will ultimately be overcome by the Israelites as they enter the Promised Land. Ham's mistake, in a sense, curses his descendants, his family tree, to be lesser than the others. And that's just an important note to make, because that will be very important to the identity of the Jewish people, because the Canaanites are not the Jews. You've likely heard in gospel lessons, I know I've said this a few different times in sermons, typically Jesus will tell stories of other people as compared to the Jews. So you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the kind of the good Jews. Then you've got the other people, like the ones that always come up with the Samaritans. But you get the Canaanites and the others. What we may not realize as we hear those stories is the Samaritans are really the Semitic people that the good Jews don't like. 
So these are not way separate groups of people. Samaritans is just effectively the Jews that live over there on that side of town. And they don't do Judaism the right way. We do Judaism the right way. And it's rooted back into the exile. So we've talked about the exile multiple times. Remember that the exile is when the kingdoms, north and south, are sucked up into Assyria and Babylon, right? But I don't know if I've said this in here yet. When the kingdom or the empire of Assyria takes the northern kingdom of Israel away, they don't want the burden of all the people. So instead what they do is they effectively decapitate the culture of the northern kingdom. So they take away the political rulers, the priests, the physicians, the teachers, the lawyers. They take away all of those people and they leave all the people who in essence were the worker bees. Same thing happens when Babylon takes over Assyria and Babylon goes down into the southern kingdom they don't take everybody. They just take the people who keep the machine running, so to speak. And they leave a lot of the others to just figure it out. And so effectively, what they do is they take away the structure that allows things to kind of fall apart into darkness, into chaos. Seventy-ish years later, when those Jewish people return, you've got all of the... I'm just... I'll say this without any sort of arrogance, but when you take the elites away from the culture and you concentrate them up in Babylon, they have a lot of time to ask heady questions and try to figure out heady answers, while all of the people working hard are just trying to stay alive. Well, fast forward 70 years, the elites come back, they've got a whole bunch of answers for questions that the worker bees never asked, <coughs> And they tried to impose that on top of the people who had stayed. And the people who stayed said, you know what? We're just, we're kind of okay as we are. And so the elites, in essence, form this new Judaism that becomes what we call in the Gospels Sadducees and Pharisees. They're the elites. They're the lawyers. They're the smart ones that wrestle with heady ideas and create this real thick legal structure. Well, the Samaritans are part of the Jews who just didn't leave. And they're just kind of living their life out in the country. They're fine. They're growing their food, and they're, they're good. But the elites in the city don't like the people out in the country. And so they're going to judge them as lesser. When Jesus comes along and he tells that iconic story of the person being hurt and laying on the side of the road, what he's really saying is, all your rules might have started off for good, but they've kept you from just being good to each other. And the Samaritan that you see as judgmental, as lesser, they kind of just do the right thing. And so that good Samaritan is put up against the good Jew. And we may see that as something pretty simple, but for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for those elite Jews, that was as, as forceful a stab as you could make. And so it's important for us to understand that as the story of Noah's descendants is told, there is a level of comparison between different groups of people that exist at the time of the exile and why they may be close but different and how their differences matter a lot. And I know that's a little convoluted, um, but when we talk about Ham, Shem, and Japhet, when we talk about their descendants, we are effectively talking about the peoples in the Middle East. You kind of get the North Africans, the Arabs, and the Phoenicians. That's in essence who you get. And if we, if that's a little confusing, then maybe I'll draw a map. Hold on. Yes. Draw a map. Okay. Oh, these markers are not very good. I'm gonna get my markers. Yes, there's a map you can look at, but I can also draw one. 
why are you taking away my funds? Okay. So in essence, you get this sort of thing, right? That looks like real things, doesn't it? Um, so in essence, what you have here, right? You've got the Mediterranean, and you've got Turkey up here. You've got kind of Saudi Arabia here. Or the Arabian Peninsula. And then you've got Egypt over here. And so what's important to note here, and Israel's over here. And of course Greece up here. What you may or may not know is kind of in a civilization sense, you've got North Africans, very different from Central Africans. And then you've got Arab people who would be in today um, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Jordan. And then you've got Phoenicians who are not Arabs. That would be your Lebanese, Turkish, Greek, right? And then maybe over into Italy. You've got three different cultures here. Of course, then you've got Persians over here in the East. Effectively, what we are seeing in chapter 11 is the root of each of these major civilizations. The way that they are telling the story of Noah and his sons is that the North Africans come from one, the Arabs come from one, those Phoenician Mediterranean people come from another. Does that make sense? Obviously, I hope we are all very clear, there are other people in the world than right here around the Mediterranean, right? We are pretty confident that there are plenty of people in Asia. We've already got people in North America. There are plenty of other people that do not fall underneath these umbrellas, which is another good way for us to know that this is not meant to be scientific. This is meant to tell a story that matters to the Jewish people. And these are the cultures that matter to the Jews. All right, Something, something's going on in China and Japan and all that stuff, great. Doesn't matter because there's no connection here. They've not quite gone over the Himalayas yet. So we're focusing on the people we know, and it's this area of that Eastern Mediterranean. Make sense? So effectively what we have, and this is one of those, sorry, we just have to save time moments. Ham's people are down here in sort of that North, Northeast Africa. Shem's people, go into this Arab area of the world, and Japheth's people come up here. So these three sons of Noah effectively populate what would be the known world for the Jewish people at that point in time. We just don't have a lot more time for every specific here, but if there's a question to help clarify this before we get into Tower of Babel, I would like to clarify a little. Really? Great, okay. Time saved, that was great. Let's jump to Building the Tower. Let's look at chapter 11. We'll just start right at the beginning of chapter 11. Once we've gotten to all of these descendants, chapter 11 really kicks off. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Effectively, what is happening here is that the people are settling. We, as the story goes, 
everyone speaking the same language, which makes sense, right? If you've got Noah and his three sons, yes, his three sons have wives, but we don't really know where they came from. And so effectively, you've got one gene pool that is beginning to branch out in multiple different ways, but of course, you all speak the same language as your siblings, right? So there is just one language at this point in time. And as they go off and travel and find a place to settle, they find a place called Shinar. A little interesting note, Shinar is actually the same root word as sin. <laughs> so, just when you think everything might be in better shape, you know, God's like, let's do it, let's start over again. They, the people go and they settle in the land of sin. Good choice. So, they go to the land of sin and they begin to build a tower. And they build this huge tower that, what, stretches to the heavens, right? What are they really trying to be godlike? That is what the story is meaning to convey. Humanity is effectively unified to become godlike. And as their tower stretches up to the heavens, God sees what they're doing and says, I don't think so. So look at chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals have built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Okay, so remember, we've got a couple stories here that are interwoven so you get this redundancy. Effectively, the people became too strong. God came down and said, I don't want them to be that strong. And so took them, shook them up, and scattered them all over the place. They couldn't talk to each other. That's the story. <laughs> I hope that at this point, you wouldn't necessarily say, why did God do that? I want you asking a different, what I would say, a better question. Why would the Jewish people think that God would have done that? See, it's a slightly different question. Do we actually think God is this jealous, vindictive, fearful being that would actually hurt the people? And I hope, based on you know, Jesus, no is the answer. Instead, they understood God to have done that, so why? Well, put yourself in the place of the exiled Jews. First off, well, actually, no, we're going to wait for that. First, you've got them knowing, it's just reality, that other people speak other languages. Why would there have been other languages if we all started from the same place? I mean, does it make perfect sense? God creates this little beautiful thing and as people have children, and they have children, and they have children, why would they speak the same language? It makes no sense that we would all speak something different. And we know, we know, and they knew too, when you cannot speak the same language, you cannot communicate effectively. I mean, holy grief. I mean, even people who speak English to each other can't communicate very effectively. <laughs> and so if you can't even speak the same language, it is really hard. It is really hard to communicate effectively, which means disagreements can arise and with very good reason. So their reality is such that they can't communicate with the people who've taken them hostage. They may not really be able to communicate with each other. I mean, it's almost as if you were to take people from all over the country in America and put them in the same room. They're not even speaking the same English let alone being able to speak to people beyond English. So the reality is there. 
How did that happen? The idea of evolution over time and changing, I mean, we understand when people move to different parts of the world and they just don't talk to each other for a long time, they begin to develop what we would call nowadays dialectical differences, but dialectical differences over time become totally different languages. And so you've got some languages, like the Romance languages, that at least share a similar root, even if they have evolved somehow differently from one another. In the same way you have Arabic is spoken very differently in different parts of the world, just like Spanish is spoken very differently in different parts of the world. But then you get even more significant differences. You've got Urdu and Mandarin and English and Zulu. I mean, totally, totally different. We can understand the timeline of how those differences can come about. Back then, that, that's not an idea that they understand. So instead, you blame it on God. We, we kind of like that too, right? I mean, how many people say something bad happens? Well, God did that, right? And maybe we are mad at God for doing that. Or maybe we need God to have done that because otherwise the world is too scary. So the idea that taking something we don't understand and putting God on it is not foreign to us. We just do it a little differently. So for them, languages becomes a function of God's desire to confuse us. All right, questions about that? Man, that's not the right question. <laughs> so why would God want to confuse us? Ask a better question. What is it God wants to confuse us? Is us not understanding God. Bingo, great, okay. So first question was, why would God want to confuse us? Second question was, how are we misunderstanding God to think that God would want to confuse us? Bingo, that's a great question. So, everything about Genesis has to do with wrestling with the Israelites' weakness. If your whole... <laughs> uh, Israelites are God's chosen people. And so they have made decisions over time. Either they decided to do something that God wanted, to not do something God wanted them to do and they were punished for it, or they decided to do something God wanted them to do and they were rewarded for it. Then if they are punished, in a sense, they are overrun by another empire, they naturally ask that big question, what did we do wrong? Because God chose us, God would not abandon us without reason. So what did we do for God to have abandoned us? And then they answer that question in specific ways that then creates the legal tradition that is pervasive in Jerusalem when Jesus is alive. Okay, we can understand this, I think, because of where we live. I think it's very common for most Americans to feel somehow exceptional right? Chosen, purposed. I mean, we have heard politicians for generations, I mean, some explicitly use the idea of the city on the hill, right? I mean, Reagan even talked about that. So we have in this country created an identity of exceptionalism. Now, some of us may say that's not right. We shouldn't see ourselves as exceptional universally. Others are perfectly fine saying we are totally exceptional and everywhere in between. Regardless of where we fall on that spectrum, that we somehow understand that we are exceptional, I think is pretty universal for most Americans. Why? Who are we? I mean, in a theological sense, we are no different, no better, no worse than everyone else. So if we're not careful, we can begin to put God on the thing we don't understand. 
and to say, okay, obviously we have more financial security, more food security, more general security, although that's not perhaps statistically true, um, and beyond. If we can't understand why, and we kind of don't want to just say we're better than everyone else, although I think some people are very comfortable with that, then what if it's ordained? What if we're actually given some kind of opportunity and then that becomes responsibility to then go into the world and do the things we think are best, not because we think that they're best, but obviously God thinks they're best, which is why we've been able to do them, so don't you want what we have, right? That's a, we may not be explicit in the divine seal of approval, but I think that most of us understand ourselves with at least some of that. And if we're honest, why do we get that? Why would God like us more? We're not any better, y'all. We're not. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when you become exceptional, you actually kind of become worse. And so we have to be very careful about taking what we don't understand and putting God on it as if because we cannot explain the why, it must be because God said or God wants or God granted or all those things. And this, what I just said, has so many ripples that if you think about, you will not like. So don't take it too far. But I do think that we are because of Jesus, responsible to ask questions that are more critical, more humble, more, mm, more generous than most of the questions we tend to ask. That was not a great answer. That was more of a sermon, but there. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Where is Shinar on the map? Um, so, good question. I didn't, I didn't do the map right. Okay, so... I, I just have to draw it again. Okay, so... smaller turkey and a, you know, you've got like kind of Egypt and Saudi Arabia and kind of that sort of stuff, and then you've got over here what is today kind of Persia, uh, Iran, right? So you've got these two rivers that come over here, this is the Euphrates, and this is the Tigris. So that creates what we would call Mesopotamia. And so Shinar is, I'm sorry, the real answer is we don't know. But <laughs> to be better than that, um, effectively, effectively people see Shinar as being somewhere kind of in this Mesopotamian region. Now, if you remember your ancient geography, who's living in this area? Not the Israelites, right? So Israelites are over here. This is Israel, right? We've got, it doesn't matter, but you've got Egypt over here. And then what we will have are the Arab people, and that comes, that's important with Abraham. Who's over here? No, Canaanites live in the Promised Land, the land of Canaan is where the Israelites go. So Israel, Judah, Canaan, Promised Land, it's all the same area. Who's over here? Ah, there it is. Babylon. Where are the people when they are writing this story? Babylon. 
So what would sound really good if the Babylonians live in the land of sin? Doesn't that sound pretty good? Yeah, that really reinforces the bad, right? If we are the good and they are the bad, wouldn't it be great if they lived in the literal land of sin? I mean, that is so helpful in a narrative sense, right? So as they start to tell this story, their captors live in the land of sin. And they were the reason why all of this messy human stuff happened in the first place, right? Because where's the Tower of Babel in Babylon, right? Same root words. That idea is not an accident. Now, when we get on in this chapter, we will see that the story of Abraham is that the people, Abraham and his family, Ur is actually a little farther south. Ur is kind of down here. But you'll see that the whole point of the story is that Abraham's family leaves Babylon. And they land in the land of Canaan. Just like who will? The Jews in exile. So it is not an accident that the arc of this story is that bad people live in the sin place. And the good people living in that sin place will ultimately leave and go to the good place. Just like the people who have been taken to the bad place, the sin place, will at some point be free and return to the good place. It's really not that complicated. Good question. All right, so let's make sure we get to the leaving of her. So look at chapter 11, verse 10. Mm. Nope, we're going to skip to verse 29. What I was going to show you in verse 10 is it says that when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arpashad, and then yada yada. Shem lived to be 500 years old. Then we jump all the way to verses 24 and 5, and the descendant of Shem is Nahor. Nahor lived to be much younger. So Nahor, after the birth of Terah, lived to be 119 years old. Now, Terah actually lived to be 205 years old. Um, He was 119 when Nahor was born. Sorry, Nahor. Shem... And then we got dotted lines to Nahor, to Terah, to Abram. All right, now I will be clear with you. Up here with Shem, they're living five, six hundred years. By the time you get down here to Nahor, they're living two hundred years. That might seem like still far-fetched, but that's a meaningful decline. Right? If you've gone from 800 to 500 to 200, your lifespan is a lot shorter. So by the time we get to what we might consider the beginning of actual history with Abraham, they're living about the right amount of time. That, again, is not an accident. They're shifting out of what would be that mythic parable kind of storytelling into stuff that is a bit more on the ground historic. All right, so let's look at verse 29. Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Aaron, 
and his daughter-in-law Sarai and his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And in the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. What is happening in this moment is that they live in Ur. Ur is right there, what we would know. Ur is um, southeast of Baghdad, very near Kuwait. So if you were to drive from Baghdad to Kuwait, you would effectively go through Ur. So we're north of the Persian Gulf, and in that Mesopotamian, really fertile crescent area, for no disclosed reason, Terah takes his family, his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, who is Abram's brother's son, and they leave. Now, it is not uncommon for people to move around. We know that people move around today to look for better opportunities, right? If the economy kind of tanks in one area, maybe move somewhere else to find a job. If a country has a problem, maybe move to a new country. I mean, immigration is not uncommon, and it wasn't uncommon there, too. It is very conceivable that the shift that Tara was making was just good sense, right? He just wanted a better life. And so they leave her, and because this area is a desert, if you were to go directly from Ur to Israel or Canaan, you would have to cross a big desert. So no one goes that way. It's too hard. Instead, they make this northern arc in order to get over to what is today Israel. You would do the same thing today if you were going by car. This northern arc takes them through a town called Haran. Now, you might be wondering, why is the town the same name as his son? We don't know. So... <laughs> As they are traveling to Canaan for no disclosed reason, they just stop. And that's where Terah dies, and that's where they live. So Abram is now in Haran. And Haran is, today, would be extreme northern Iraq, close to Turkey. And they just stop. And at the end of chapter 11, Abram and his family are now there with Lot and his family, and God will call to Abram to make another move. And what's interesting is it does say that Terah intended to go to Canaan, but doesn't say why. So there is something about Canaan that is already foreshadowing God's purposes in this story, but God did not tell Terah to leave. God will tell Abram to leave. And so Terah has kind of gotten him to where he should be in order for God to get him the rest of the way. We have five minutes. Any questions about this story? Or something to say a bit more about? Sarah, right? We'll get there. There's a reason that happens. So just for sake of, 
of you know speaking clearly. Sarah comes from somewhere. She is not related. So Abraham effectively marries someone he's not related to, we think. I mean, there's nothing to show, there's nothing to say otherwise. Um, that is not the case with many of the other people, like Lot. There is a lot of intermarrying and a lot of cousins together. And of course, we know, well, maybe you know, um, many of you know, Lot goes even further than that because Lot ultimately has children with his daughters. And so that is, yeah, ooh, yeah. So I mean, it's, yes, there is a lot of this mixing together. But remember that there is, um, there is security in knowing where children and spouses and families come from, right? This is not uncommon in, say, monarchies all over the world, and it's not about lack of available people. It's about inheritance. I mean, it's all of us, always about money. And so if you've got some money, and you might divide that money unless you marry your cousin, then the money stays in the family, that, that's not such a bad idea. And we certainly understand the genetic problems with lack of diversity. But if you really just think about, you, you don't know people, right? If you're in a little camp and you've got a little group of people and you're raising flocks and maybe raising some crops and you need to find a, a person for your kids to marry, there is this person over here that maybe you haven't seen for years or ever, but you have the same grandparent. So you kind of know their people and you trust a similarity about the way in which they see the world and live their life. The wisdom of that kind of marriage, I get it. I mean, I, I totally understand the wisdom of that marriage. We see that and think, ooh, because of genetics. But I also don't want to make it sound like they were some kind of gross in this intermarrying because I think that the logistical reasons are decently, we can understand them, even if we disagree with them. Maybe one more? Yeah, anybody else? All right, then chapter 12 next week. See you then. Thank you all.